Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. At Universal Orlando Resort, Universal City Walk is the epicenter of awesome. With so many great places to shop, you can take home more than just memories. Wow. Plus, restaurants at Universal City Walk offer unique dining experiences that every member of your party will enjoy, including the toothsome chocolate emporium and savory feast kitchen where chefs create culinary alchemy with gourmet chocolate and artisanal milkshakes. We here at Binge Mode had the pleasure of gazing upon the crowds exiting the Toothsome Chocolate Emporium, and boy, did those confections look delicious. They really did. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Warning. Binge Mode contains adult content. Listen, I don't know what we're going to say until we get there, but we're going to say something that's adult content. I can't really tell you what it is now, but it'll happen. Like Trelawney, I'm very poor at predicting what will actually happen until it happens. So there's that. The inner eye does not see upon command. That's right. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why Wood is weeping, please proceed with extreme caution. Calm down, my guy. And now binge mode. How extraordinarily like your father you are, Potter, Snape said suddenly, his eyes glinting. He too is exceedingly arrogant. A small amount of talent on the Quidditch field made him think he was a cut above the rest of us too, strutting around the place with his friends and admirers. The resemblance between you is uncanny. My dad didn't strut said Harry, before he could stop himself. And neither do I. Your father didn't set much store by rules either. Snape went on, pressing his advantage, his thin face full of malice. Rules were for lesser mortals, not Quidditch Cup winners. His head was so swollen Shut up! Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished bidding Professor Snape good day and advising him to wash his hair. That's right. The slime ball. <laughs> it's Ringer staff writer, yes. your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mel? We'll see about this. We'll see about a lot of things. Is it time for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe? Whether your sign reads, Go Gryffindor, or Lions for the Cup. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five points, five stars for Binge Boat. It's coming home. It's coming home. <laughs> please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is a great place to swap sound bites of your favorite extremely biased Lee Jordan <laughs> gameplay commentary. The cup is coming home. Listen, give me Lunar, give me death. (laughs) On yesterday's Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how humiliation shapes chapters 6 through 10 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the third book in this beloved saga. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 11 through 15. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those Azkaban chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep on details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Wide canon. (laughs) Chudley canon. 
taking the entire series into account from the moment the Boggart Dementor approaches. So find a happy memory and hold on tight because it's time to cast our Patronus. Mal? Yeah? You must share the plot details only! I cannot stress this (gasps) enough. Only if we're more than 50 points up. Please! You got that? Only if we're more than 50. Mal, or we win the podcast, but we lose the cup. You've got that. Have you not? You must share the plot details. Only if we're... I know, Jason. In that case, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Azkaban chapters 11 to 15 by climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine to plot the Hogwarts Express. Chapter 11. The Fireball. Yes. Love a broomstick. Harry, his mind reeling from what he's learned about Sirius Black's relationship to his father, returns to Hogwarts, a fierce hatred toward Black possessing him. To take Harry's mind off things, Ron suggests a visit to Hagrid's. The half-giant is distraught. He's just received a letter ordering him to bring Buckbeak to London for a hearing that could result in Bucky's execution. Very tough. The trio agrees to help Hagrid. Christmas morning and a secret Santa has... Just sent Harry a firebolt broom. What? Ron is elated. Hermione is suspicious because she remembers things that happened very recently. (laughs) Might it not be jinxed? Just then, Crookshanks goes after Scabbers again, and the feud between Ron and Hermione intensifies. Things get worse when Hermione snitches Harry out to McGonagall. Tough look. The Transfiguration (laughs) Professor confiscates the firebolt for the moment in order to examine it for dark magic. Ron cannot believe it. Chapter 12, The Patronus. Harry meets Lupin for his anti-dementor training. Using a boggart to simulate one of Azkaban's feared guards, Lupin teaches Harry the Patronus charm. This is complex, highly advanced magic, and Harry struggles to produce a full Patronus. During the session, Lupin admits that he was friends with Harry's father and that he knew, or as he says, thought he knew, Sirius Black. At another training session, Lupin tells Harry about the terrifying, soul-draining Dementor's kiss. And Harry says that Black deserves that for what he's done. Professor McGallion finishes her investigation into the firebolt just in time for the must-win match against Ravenclaw this weekend. Ron storms into the common room carrying a bloody bedsheet. He screams at Hermione, accusing her cat, Crookshanks, of killing his rat, Scabbers. The other victim in this terrible affair? Their friendship, guys. Chapter 13. Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw. Ron is distraught and angry over what he assumes is Scabber's death. Hopefully, the big Gryffindor-Ravenclaw match can take his mind off it. Harry's firebolt dominates the field. Ravenclaw's seeker, Cho Chang. In a sprint for the snitch, Harry sees what he thinks are three Dementors. He's prepared. He reaches for his wand and instinctively unleashes... Expecto Patronum. He catches the snitch. Wood is elated. They're still in the hunt. And oh, by the way, the Dementors turn out to be Malfoy, Crab, Goyle, and Marcus Flint in disguise. A disgusted Megalion. Doc Slytherin. 50 points. That night, Harry awakes to screaming. Ron saw Sirius Black standing over him with a knife. How did he get in? Oh, you know, it turns out Neville Longbottom wrote down all the passwords on a piece of paper that he then lost. Very tough look for our guy, <laughs> very, Neville. Very, very tough look for our guy, Neville. Quote, unquote, lost. We'll get to that later. <laughs> Extremely tough for Neville. That's right. We will get to that later. Chapter 14, 
Snape Scratch. Great chapter. With the castle on high alert, Harry and Ron go to see Hagrid. The gameskeeper is preparing to travel to London for Buckbeak's trial. He urges Ron to forgive Hermione. Any chance of that, however, goes out the window when, later on, Hermione threatens to snitch again. This time on Harry if he sneaks into Hogsmeade again. Really wild moment from Hermione. She's like, I'll tell. It's like there is absolutely no discussion, <laughs> which Harry does anyways, by the way, using the Marauder's Map and the Invisibility Cloak. Over by the Shrieking Shack, Harry throws mud at Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle, utterly confusing the trio. Then, disaster. Harry's cloak slips and his head appears. Malfoy runs back to the castle. Harry takes the secret passage back, desperate to head him off. Snape comes for Harry, questioning him about Malfoy's story, and he makes Harry turn out his pockets where he discovers the Marauder's map, among other things. Snape is unable to activate the map, however, instead earning insults from each Marauder in turn. Incredible passage. Snape summons Lupin, who shows up to save the day, telling Snape that clearly this parchment is just a prank device. You know, insulting, childish, sure, but dangerous? Surely not. Okay, case closed. Let's move on. Only Lupin's not done yet. Out of Snape's earshot, Lupin tells Harry that he knows the parchment is a map and they can't believe Harry didn't turn in. It's very dangerous. Lupin keeps the item. As Harry and Ron make their way back toward Gryffindor Tower, Hermione tells them that Buckbeak has lost his case and is to be executed. Dag. Dag. Very tough stuff. Tough. Chapter 15, the Quidditch final. Look, other stuff happens in this chapter. Hermione and Trelawney have a fight. But this is the second Quidditch-centric chapter in this five-chapter span. A lot of sports. Stannis would love it. Stannis Stannis loves to watch sports, sports, sports. On the eve of the big match between Gryffindor and Slytherin, everyone is on edge. Harry, too nervous to sleep after he wakes up from a very weird dream that we'll discuss a bit later, sees Crookshanks and... Uh-oh, a huge black dog. They're friends. Trotting it's side so by cute. side across the school. It is really a sweet bond. Yeah, it's very cute, those two. Who knew that the Grim was such a softie? Love it. The match itself is an intense, chippy affair featuring numerous fouls and dangerous physical play. Gryffindor can only win the tournament. I hate to keep saying this, guys. <laughs> if Harry catches the snitch when the team is up by more than 50 points— With his team 60 points ahead of Slytherin, Harry beats Malfoy to the snitch. And for the first time in years, Gryffindor has won the cup. Wood and Medallion fucking weep. It's coming home. It's coming (laughs) home. The cup is coming home. (laughs) Jason? You are disturbing the clairvoyant vibrations. That's right. And that gets us to this episode's big idea because we need to focus fully. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 11 through 15 of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is force of will. Chapter 11, the firebolt. Now, Harry has always been a willful boy prone to angry outbursts when provoked. And finding out that Sirius Black One was his father's good friend and secret keeper. And two, that he betrayed James and Lily to Voldemort makes Harry angrier than he's ever been. I think it's fair to say that he's ever been in his life. He feels a hatred towards Sirius. And as he looks back at the photos that Hagrid gave him of Sirius as the best man at his parents' wedding, the hatred, quote, courses through Harry 
like a poison, giving him the force of will to consider things which he once would have thought unthinkable. Arthur Weasley once made Harry promise not to go after Black. And at the time, that seemed an absurd request. Now Harry very much would like to do just that. Yes. And not necessarily to bring Black to justice. In Harry's mind, justice for Black's supposed terrible deeds is not possible. Azkaban's dementors don't affect Black, Harry reminds Ron. And Hermione, when his friends attempt to dissuade him from doing, quote, anything stupid, Harry says, it's not a punishment for him like it's for the others. Harry wants to punish Black. More than that, he wants revenge. Does he want to kill Black to actually take his life? Does he have the will to do that, to commit murder? When Ron asks him if that's (laughs) what he wants to do, Harry pointedly does not answer. That's a yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's an easy yes or no question, by the way. If someone says you want to murder someone and you don't say no. That's a yes. I consider that a yes. That's one of the easiest questions you can be asked. Do you want to murder? Would you like to murder? No. Okay. Very easy to say no to that one. And Harry's just like, well, Maybe some light murdering? At least he didn't do the no he and Tom Riddle gave to Dumbledore and Dippet. He's like, no. No. (laughs) Instead, Harry's mind returns to the humiliations of recent days. Malfoy's taunt. Remember what he said to me in potions? If it was me, I'd hunt him down myself. I'd want revenge. Ron says to Harry, you're going to take Malfoy's advice instead of ours? Great point. What? Great point. But it's not that Harry trusts Malfoy or thinks there's any insight there. Part of Harry's relentless, locked-in focus on certain things in his life is that he is an obsessive person. And one of his obsessions is is Malfoy-centric. Yes. And so if Malfoy knows something he doesn't, that's going to inform Harry's decisions. And the fact that Malfoy had this information really goads Harry. It really gets to him. Every time Harry's in the presence of the Dementors— He hears his parents the night that they died, first his mother and then eventually his father, as we'll see in the next chapter. And their desperation and fear are so present and raw that this will continue to dominate Harry's thoughts. Nobody can understand what that's like. Hermione tries to invoke them to warn Harry off, telling him That he's playing right into Black's hands, putting himself into danger. Isn't this what Voldemort would want? And she says, your mom and dad wouldn't want you to get hurt, would they? This, of course, is a miscalculation. Harry says, I'll never know what they'd have wanted because thanks to Black, I've never spoken to them. Their deaths, Harry's determination to understand what happened and to right that wrong in any way he can is all-consuming. As for Hermione, she's never been a follower. And as we've seen with her tiffs with Trelawney, this year more than ever, she's unwilling to suffer fools. She simply, and we'll find out more about this, and she simply just does not have the time for this. And so when Harry receives a brand new cutting edge, super dope firebolt broom from an anonymous admirer, following another, what could it be rapper moment? Guys, it's shaped like a broom. Again, what could it be? It's a Just astonishing. Yeah. Just Her- astonishing. Hermione is rightly suspicious. Harry, for his part, has had an up and down record with anonymous gifts and found objects. The Invisibly Cloak has been incredibly useful. Tom Riddle's diary was much less so. But in each case, Harry's thirst for new stuff. Right. And who doesn't love gifts? We all love gifts. Love a gift. Right? Love a gift. Love a Starbucks card. That said, 
somewhat more dangerous in a magical world. Harry's thirst for new stuff clearly is overpowered sober judgment. Hermione, we might argue, sees things more clearly from her perspective, from her remove. Well, she says, who'd send Harry something as expensive as that and not even tell him they'd sent it? Throwing cold water on Harry and Ron's celebration of the boon. I don't think anyone should ride that broom just yet, she says. Without any further discussion with her friends, she goes to McGonagall. The transfiguration teacher confiscates the broom in order to study it for jinxes, and Ron is fucking furious. But Hermione, to her credit, no matter what you think of what she's done, does not yield an inch. Why did she tell McGonagall? She says, because I thought, and Professor McGonagall agrees with me, that that broom was probably sent to Harry by Sirius Black. And she's right. That's the wild thing. She's right, of course. That is besides the point, though. Yes, Hermione's being an absolutely annoying scold and a blatant snitch. But she has a point. From her perspective, Harry's putting his life in danger all because of a brand new toy. And here's an aside. I think Voldemort could have ended this whole thing <laughs> like in the first 150 pages of Sorcerer's Stone just by sending Harry a jinx broom. <laughs> like, just do that. Send him a gift. Why wait until Harry's fourth year in the Triwizard Tournament and then invest the entire year in an imposter plot? Kid has a just a he, thirst. He loves stuff. Medallion gave him a taste, and he now did. he needs a new broom every two years. <laughs> He's got the itch. By the way, I love the idea that Medallion's reaction to seeing the fireball, like, of course, our instinct would be, Oh, she'd be thrilled. Right, right. She'd hand wave Hermione. Yeah. And she'd say, let my seeker fly free. Right. I like the idea that she sees this gift. Look, she provided the news. Right, yeah, yeah. She's Who like, did who's, this? who's this? Yeah. Who's this competitor? Who's, right. Who's on my corner? My compromised corner. This reminds me of, you know, how Buddy Garrity felt when Joe McCoy came a calling, <laughs> took that captain's chair at the booster dinner. Holy shit. Hermione cares about Harry and his well-being. And to her, Quidditch is just a bloody game, which is, honestly, it is just a bloody game. And as Dumbledore told Neville, it takes a great deal of courage to stand up to our enemies, but just as much to stand up to our friends. Love Neville. <laughs> Not to be overshadowed in this chapter by Rouse and shiny broom handles, Professor Trelawney's absolutely iconic showing at the Christmas luncheon. Incredible stuff. <laughs> I have been crystal gazing, Headmaster. <laughs> said Professor Trelawney in her mistiest, most faraway voice. And to my astonishment, I saw myself abandoning my solitary luncheon and coming to join you. Who am I to refuse the promptings of fate? The ice between Megalion and Trelawney in this section is almost enough to freeze the flame and the candles in the Great Hall. When Trelawney says that she dare not sit because then they'd be 13, Megalion just dunks on her time and again. We'll risk it, Sybil. Do sit down, the turkey's getting stone cold. And then when Trelawney asks where Lupin is, Dumbledore says he's ill. McGonagall, this is fucking <laughs> McGonagall chimes in. But surely you already knew that, Sybil? <laughs> Certainly I knew Minerva, she said quietly. But one does not parade the fact that one is all-knowing. I frequently act as though I am not possessed of the inner eye, so as not to make others nervous. McGallion fires back with an all-timer here. An all-timer. That explains a great deal. <laughs> Now, this is obviously an unparalleled exchange and high comedy, but it is also a testament to the force of will required to interact day after day with those you simply do not respect and cannot abide. Chapter 12, the Patronus. Love a Patronus. The most pressing matter for Harry in these chapters is 
how do I resist the Dementors? We'll talk about why in a bit. But the weakness the Dementors reveal in him stemming from the terrible tragedy of his parents' murder is unbearable to Harry. He needs to find a way to fight back against them. Lupin provides it, the Patronus term. Powered by the happiest memory a caster has, the Patronus is, in Lupin's words, a guardian that acts as a shield between you and the Dementor. Each Patronus, as we shall see soon, is unique to the person who calls upon it. Harry asks, how do I do it? Lupin says, with an incantation which will work only if you are concentrating with all your might on a single very happy memory. Again, this is complex and advanced stuff. Just think about how difficult it would be, how much will it would take to focus all your energy, like a laser beam, on one extremely happy memory, just under normal everyday conditions, shutting out the distractions of everyday life. Now imagine doing that while under attack, while all the positivity and warmth and love is being drained out of you and you're doing who knows what. It's appallingly difficult. Such a thing will require an uncanny strength of will. I would think about recording binge mode with you. It is way too dangerous, obviously, to use a real Dementor in these lessons. So Lupin, once again, just showing his ingenuity and what a truly remarkable teacher he is, simulates one using a bogger, the shapeshifter, assumes the form of Harry's greatest fear. And its presence has much the same effect on Harry as the real thing. A weakening of the mind and the body, oppressive cold. A little bit more later on the extent of the effect of a bogger. As Harry passes out, he hears the unbearable screams of his mother, her voice louder now as she's murdered by Voldemort. Harry's first attempt ends with him flat on his back, passed out. Lupin tells Harry that if he wants to stop, he'll more than understand. But... This isn't a consideration for Harry. He can't. He's a fighter. He needs a way to fight back. This is his nature. Not being able to do the thing that comes naturally to him in this instance feels alien. It makes him feel, as we discussed last episode, humiliated and weak. Of course, Harry has the will to go through a bit more of this, painful though it is, if it means acquiring a weapon against the darkness. And at Lupin's urging, Harry selects another memory. Let's try a stronger one. And he gives it another go. This time, he hears his father, James, and his last moments trying to defend Lily and the shrill, exultant cackling from Voldemort. Lupin brings Harry to once again. Lupin is shaken now. His will to teach the son of his friend this complex incantation is crumbling. And he tries to back out, saying, Harry, perhaps we should leave it here for tonight. This charm is ridiculously advanced. I shouldn't have suggested putting you through this. That phrase, putting you through it, Lupin must feel as if he's torturing Harry, returning him to the worst moment in his young life. He's helping his friend's son, protecting him, but also forcing him to relive the worst moment of his life. But Harry must continue. And part of his struggle stems from the one thing compromising the strength of his will, the dissonance that he feels within. He wants to fend off the Dementors. He wants to learn how to cast a Patronus. He wants to focus on the happy memory. He wants to ensure that he doesn't have to live through the heartache of hearing his parents' death again. Or does he? That last point is causing a clash within Harry, a battle of wills. Quote, but he shouldn't think that, or he would hear her again, and he didn't want to. Or did he? Now, this is heartbreaking. The only way that Harry can hear his mother is to hear her dying. After Harry hears his father's voice for the first time, he realizes that there are tears on his face as he regains consciousness. It's the first time that he's ever heard James speak. He tells Lupin, and Lupin says, you heard James? And it's described as Lupin speaking in a, quote, strange voice. It's important for us to remember that in Harry Potter, magic isn't just about aerial sports and mischievating maps and candy that makes you levitate. It's often the portal 
to your innermost anguish. And in a way, what's happening here with the Patronus is a little bit like the mirror of error said again. Remember that feeling that Harry had when he looked into the mirror. Quote, he had a powerful kind of ache inside him, half joy, half terrible sadness. And here Harry thinks, quote, terrible though it was to hear his parents' last moment replayed inside his head. These were the only times Harry had heard their voices since he was a very small child. Harry doesn't feel any joy here. But he does feel longing, and pushing through that requires an immense force of will. And this is a challenge that he will face time and again throughout the series, including when he needs to shut his mind using occlumency in Order of the Phoenix, but also wants to know, really, really wants to know what's behind that door. And sometimes the thing that you fear is also the gateway to the thing that you crave. He selects another memory. The moment he discovered he was a wizard and thus would be able to leave Privet Drive and start a whole new life. And this time he produces... A partial Patronus, what I like to call a partial. An immense achievement for one so young. Let's stop here. I just would like to note that the descriptions of Harry conjuring the Patronus are a clear ejaculation metaphor. The talk of concentrating all your might on an extremely one happy moment, every fiber of your being in order to produce this silvery strings of stuff that shoot out of the end of the wall is <laughs> incredible. Anyway, after the training session, Harry sits down in a darkened hallway to regain his strength and composure. Refractory period. Smoke that cigarette. And also to bolster his will. He thinks about his parents, their screams. Wanting to hear his parents, he realizes, weakens him, makes it impossible for him to produce what I'll call a full from the book, Harry felt angry with himself, guilty about his secret desire to hear his parents' voices again. He's placing such a burden on himself because he feels that he has to. They're dead, he told himself sternly. They're dead and listening to echoes of them won't bring them back. Now, if you're still wondering whether Harry is a jock or a nerd, and again, I think we reject that binary. But if you're wondering, quote from the book again, you'd better get a grip on yourself if you want that Quidditch cup. That's the end of that statement. Priorities! Honestly, like a, <laughs> it's, it's a like, tough moment. It's a like very, it's a, such an emotionally it, it, right? captivating part of the story, and you're sad, and you're inspired, and you're feeling all these emotions, and you're thinking about this dissonance within Harry, and then he's just like quitted you. Got to get that quitted. Takes you out of it a bit. Forget Lily and James, man. They're not going to help you on that field. Harry's hoping to produce a lot more especially after a month of hard training. Lupin again tries to lift Harry's spirit, telling him, for a 13-year-old wizard, even an indistinct Patronus is a huge achievement. Over some butterbeers, Lupin tells Harry what he knows about the Dementors, including the soul-stealing Dementors' kiss, which leaves its victims, some would say, worse than dead. Lupin says, you can exist without your soul, you know, as long as your brain and heart are still working, but you have no sense of self anymore, no memory, no anything. There's no chance at all of recovery. You'll just exist as an empty shell and your soul is gone forever lost this is the fate that awaits black after the ministry has basically okayed the azkaban guards to do this he deserves it harry says and the forcefulness of the comment the steeliness of harry's will in that moment takes lupin quite by surprise do you really think anyone deserves that he says chapter 13 gryffindor versus ravenclaw these chapters are heavy on quidditch and they act as a kind of pause in the in the story's momentum it's a time when harry he has to take a breath and take stock of where he is and what he needs to do. Potter has faced Voldemort now three times. Each time he has won. We should not be that surprised then that his focus is on, and I mean this 
sincerely, the thing that at this point is a challenge for him, winning the Hogwarts Quidditch Cup. He hasn't done that yet. That's right. He's dunked on Voldemort three times. (laughs) Has not won the Hogwarts Cup yet. His desire to master the Patronus Charm stems in large part from his drive to win the Quidditch Cup and defeat Slytherin and his schoolboy nemesis, Draco Malfoy. After all... The Dementors are everywhere around Hogwarts. There's no avoiding them. And Harry has two crucial matches remaining versus Ravenclaw and then Slytherin. His weakness in their presence has already cost Gryffindor one game, the game against Hufflepuff. He can't let that happen again. Wood, really desperate as any character has ever been in this freaking story, asks during one of his hard-ass training sessions without a shred of sensitivity, Harry, you've sorted out your Dementor problem, haven't you? It's like, go to dick. You figure that out, right? Also... Let's be real for a second. <laughs> Gryffindor doesn't win a game unless Harry's their seeker. Let's be real for a second. It's LeBron-esque. Right. It's like the Cavs. Where is Gryffindor without <laughs> Harry? Right? Right. Listen, Fred and George love those guys. They're basically goons yeah. out there. You're not the Warriors. Right. So is Harry thinking of Voldemort or Sirius Black or the overarching and ever-present struggle between good and evil in the wizarding world? No. He wants to get his flaccid Patronus hard so he can <laughs> win on Saturday. <laughs> When Malfoy and his thugs crash the game dressed as Dementors in the hopes that they can throw Harry off his stride, Harry displays his trademark penchant for coming through in the clutch, under pressure, managing to produce what appears to be something very close to a full, perhaps a (laughs) semi-Patronus, under tremendous pressure, all while chasing the snitch. It's not described as a stag, so we don't know if it's the full. Right, but it's enormous. But it's a lot of material. Megalian comes through in the clutch as well. An unworthy trick, she shouts. A low and cowardly attempt to sabotage the Gryffindor Seeker and docks them 50 points. Wonderful. She's, she's just exceptional. This chapter begins, however, not with Quidditch, but with the ramifications of Ron accusing Crookshanks of murder after finding blood on his sheets. Scabbard's gone from his bed and cat hair's on the floor. Guys, some tips here. Just get a lint roller or two. The bond between Harry, Ron, and Hermione is... One of the primary through lines of the entire series, when something shakes that bond in any direction with any of the pairings of people, the impact is seismic. And Ron and Hermione cannot get past this, at least not here. They can't communicate rationally in order to make up because they're both too headstrong. They're too blinded by their own force of will. Neither is willing to concede the point. Ron says he'd be fine if Hermione would just admit that she was wrong, but she can't do it. And at the party after the Quidditch win... Ron speaks loudly about how happy Scabbers would be if he'd been there at the celebration, (laughs) if he hadn't been, you know, eaten. Hermione runs off in tears. Those barbs, among other things, are interrupted when Megalian makes them all go to bed. Obviously, she needs to be well-rested to wake up early in the morning, fresh as a daisy, vault full, play some new bets. But the chatter and the fear pick back up again after Ron wakes his dorm mates with a scream to reveal that Sirius Black himself Filthy matted hair, sunken face, stood over his bed with a knife in his hands. No safer place than Hogwarts where the common room guardians hand out passwords to forgetful students and then let in wanted criminals who happen to have the keywords. Tough look for uh, Sir Cardigan. Cardigan? Cadigan. Cadigan, sorry. Can we call him Sir Cardigan? It's tough look for Sir Cardigan. <laughs> Sir Cardigan the Wooly. Yes, right this way, sir. Also, there needs to be some kind of thing where you can't say three passwords. You know what I mean? Of like course. it's like Sirius is reading down a list. Yeah. He's like, no. You gotta no, lock the closer, keyboard closer, at some closer. point. <laughs> <laughs> you need a lockout deck. But let's focus for a minute 
on Sirius's force of will. The fact that he is in that common room standing over Ron with a knife is huge, is really notable. He was in jail. He was in Azkaban for 12 years for a crime. He did not commit. He lost his best friends, James to death, Pettigrew to betrayal, Lupin to doubt. He lost his freedom, and every day he faced the threat of losing his sanity. But he's out now. He broke free. He could go anywhere, in theory. He could go do anything. He's a wizard, people. He's an animagus. He can disguise himself in unparalleled ways, and yet, That is not the path he's choosing. He is driving himself time and again back into the belly of the beast. He is entering Hogwarts, a place full of the Dementors hunting him, full of wizards capable of bringing him down. Such is his relentless determination and desperation to find Pettigrew and make him pay. Chapter 14, Snape's grudge. Hermione's love for her friend Harry combines in this chapter with her own formidable force of will. When Harry considers sneaking into Hogsmeade yet again— She tells him that if he does, she'll go to McGonagall. And she does this without any, like, not even part of the conversation. She basically is, like, overcures them and is like, I'll go to McGonagall, whatever. She's willing to forgo her friendship with her two besties if it means they'll be safe and sound. If you think about the formulation for a second, it makes a lot of sense. You can only be forgiven by people who are alive. The difference between will and stubbornness can seem like a gray zone at times. Sometimes it's a question of perspective. One person's force of will is another person's bullheadedness. And it's fair to say that Harry, Hermione, and Ron shift between will and stubbornness from page to page in Azkaban. Harry does sneak into Hogsmeade. This despite Hermione's threats. And remember, she's already gone to McGonagall once. Like, it's not an empty threat. She's done this already. And the seemingly very, very real threat to his life posed by Sirius Black, who is just in his room. Yeah. Hermione talks a lot of sense here. She is, as usual, seeing the board more clearly. I get it. And then there's also the Dementors that are just around. So which is this from each of these characters now? Stubbornness or willfulness? I think if you analyze it, it's really hard to tell. Right. Both. Yeah. It's not necessarily the smartest decision Harry ever makes, but, you know. Yeah. Candy. Candy is delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Harry has a run-in with Malfoy at the Shrieking Shack, where we get more excellent foreshadowing about the lore around that building. And Harry's cover is blown. Can't resist the urge to throw some muck and mud at Malfoy's slicked back fucking hair. Any child that has that hairstyle is fucking suspect. Terrible. (laughs) Malfoy sees Harry's floating head after the invisibility cloak slips, and he... Rushes back to school to rat out Harry. Can't wait for a chance to get him in trouble yet again. And Harry's like, oh, shit. He runs back right into the waiting arms of Severus Snape. Thankfully not right into because Snape didn't see him emerge from the witch, though Snape is there shortly thereafter. Harry had to deposit his invisibility cloak in the tunnel. Uh, The amount of times that Harry has to leave that cloak places. (laughs) It's fucking (laughs) tough. The interrogation that follows is a battle of wills. A highly enjoyable, highly memorable battle of wills. Like Malfoy, Snape, despite what we will come to learn over the course of the series about his true role as Harry's secret protector, still hates this kid and is always looking for an opportunity to humble or shame Harry. So, he said, straightening up again, everyone from the Minister of Magic downward has been trying to keep famous Harry Potter safe from Sirius Black. But famous Harry Potter is a law unto himself. 
Let the ordinary people worry about his safety. Famous Harry Potter goes where he wants to with no thought for the consequences. Snape is protecting Harry because he is Lily's son. Right. But Harry is also James's son. And that is a contradiction that Snape cannot ignore. Harry is too much like James, too arrogant, too willful, too many reminders of the things that haunted Snape's youth and that he still hates to this day. From Snape's point of view, what could be worse than seeing the things that made his Hogwarts years miserable constantly on display in the boy that he's sworn to protect? How extraordinarily like your father you are, Potter, Snape said suddenly, his eyes glinting. He, too, was exceedingly arrogant. A small amount of talent on the Quidditch field made him think he was a cut above the rest of us, too. Strutting around the place with his friends and admirers, the resemblance between you is uncanny. And Harry says, my dad didn't strut, and neither do I. But Snape keeps pushing, keeps attacking James. Harry snaps, just like he did with Marge. Because that's the one thing he cannot and will not abide consequences. Be damn talking shit about his parents. He tells Snape to shut up and reveals that he knows that Snape hates James because James saved his life. And Snape forces him to turn out his pockets where Zonko's products and the map rest. And by the way, both incriminating because Harry's not allowed to go to Hogsmeade. Right. (laughs) Snape sniffs out the importance of this strange square of old parchment Harry has on him, even if he doesn't know exactly what the thing does. And his suspicion is confirmed, seemingly, when he threatens to burn the map. And Harry's like, wait, 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 hold on a second. Right. Harry, for his part, also manages to keep his composure after this outburst, despite hard questioning from Snape. I love the moment when Harry's, you know, his first instinct naturally is to say, Ron gave me all this stuff. And Snape's like, indeed? And you've been carrying them around ever since? (laughs) Not very touching. So good. Even when Lupin shows up, Harry manages to maintain a facade of calm-ish. The Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher reacts... In fascinating fashion to seeing the map, he shoots Harry a coded look that tells him, just chill for a second, let me handle this. And he gets Harry out of the jam with Snape, but then he pulls Harry and Ron aside and he speaks to Harry, dropping the hammer. Don't expect me to cover up for you again, Harry. I cannot make you take Sirius Black seriously. And here comes the really gutting part. But I would have thought that what you heard when the Dementors drawn near you would have had more of an effect on you. Your parents gave their lives to keep you alive, Harry. A poor way to repay them, gambling their sacrifice for a bag of magic tricks. Holy shit. Wow. I mean, that obviously makes Harry feel like garbage, as it should, but everything that Lupin's saying is valid. It's justified. Harry is gambling their sacrifice. That's where the force of will can be so dangerous. Where is it leading him in any given moment? What is it causing him to do? And Harry walks away from that moment, from the book, feeling worse by far than he had at any point in Snape's office. That moment, that reaction from someone that Harry has come to trust and admire, forces us to consider what Harry's force of will costs. And now a brief break for a word from our sponsors. Binge Mode is brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. This football season, take a deep dive just like you do with binge mode, into fantasy. Don't just be a fantasy football commissioner. Rule as a Yahoo fantasy football commissioner. No joke. Yahoo's the number one fantasy platform for commissioners on the planet. They've spent the offseason making serious upgrades to enhance your experience. Upgrades like easier scoring, new trophies, 
and a buttery smooth app experience. Ooh. All in the name of your squad coming together and owning this season. And when the season is over as commissioner, you get to pick the punishments. That's right. You're the commissioner, you make the rules, you run the league. That's right. So what do you say, commish? Dive into fantasy football. It's time for you to rule. Start your league now at yahoo.com slash fantasy football. And now back to binge mode. Chapter 15, the Quidditch final. Ah, Quidditch. Even after making up with Harry and Ron following the news of Hagrid's lost hearing, and there's just a great moment when, after Hermione is sort of saying in agonized fashion, you know, there'll be an appeal, but nothing will be different. And Ron says, yeah, it will said Ron fiercely. You won't have to do all the work alone this time, Hermione. I'll help. Oh, Ron! Hermione flung her arms around Ron's neck and broke down completely. Ron, looking quite terrified, patted her very awkwardly on the top of the head. So much Ron Hermione foreshadowing in this book. I love it. Even after she makes up with them, though, she still had enough in every other area. Buckbeak is going to be executed. Hagrid is distraught. She's taken way too many classes. And Malfoy is talking shit. After seeing Hagrid weeping over Bucky's looming date with the headsman, this little fucker says, <laughs> have you ever seen anything quite as pathetic? And he's supposed to be our teacher. Hey, Draco, quick question. What did the five fingers say to the face? In what must be one of the most satisfying scenes in the entire series, Hermione hauls off and slaps Draco, quote, with all the strength she could muster. Staggering the git, humbling him in front of his boys, Crab and Goyle. Ron and Harry, shocked, have to hold her back. Why are they holding her back? Let her kick this kid's fucking ass. Just let her get five licks in, then stop it. I don't understand why they're holding her back. She also drops out of divination following an epic showdown with Trelawney, following another mention of the Grimm. She just has lost her patience. It's a lot like, you know, the people say that New Yorkers are rude. It's not true. What it is is they're in a rush because they don't have time. <laughs> and it's much the same with Hermione in this book. She doesn't have time. She literally is doing too much. She does not have time for this shit. She's lost her patience. The force of will required to maintain her course load this year is taxing Hermione in countless ways, even leading her to missing charms, and it's not worth it for this nonsense. Trelawney isn't sorry to see her go. I'm sorry to say that from the moment you have arrived in this class, my dear, it is apparent that you do not have what the noble art of divination requires. Indeed, I don't remember ever meeting a student whose mind was so hopelessly mundane. Extremely <laughs> tough. It's Quidditch time. It is. Let's just sidebar for a Isn't minute. Isn't that here. always what it is for always, our always guy Oliver time. Wood? We need to talk about him. Talk we need about, to talk about Oliver. Talk about Wood. his force of will for a second. If my guy Oliver Wood could win the cup just by wanting it, Gryffindor <laughs> would never lose. It's his final year, senior year for Oliver Wood, has yet to win the cup. Just living in Charlie Weasley's shadow. Has to win it. And this guy cannot loosen his grip on the team. Constantly reminding the squad, and Harry in particular, guys, we got to win by more than 50. Do not go for the snitch unless we are up by more than 50. You've got that, haven't you? He says to Harry, you mustn't catch the snitch only if we're, I know, Oliver! <laughs> Harry screams, this guy is going to burn out his squad. It's wild how crazy he is. And yet he gets to ride off, fly off into the sunset because guess what? Gryffindor wins the cup. And he goes pro. Pudlamina United. Shouts. Shouts to my guy. The cup final has all the physicality and fire that you would expect from a high-level competition. Harry and the whole Gryffindor team display their will to win over the course of the match, which includes numerous hard fouls. Numerous. Unsanctioned attacks on the keeper. Grab brooms. 
grabbed heads, clubbed heads, thunderous bludger hits, thrown elbows, numerous penalty shots. Almost all of that is from Slytherin to Gryffindor. Madam Hooch is irate and, of course, as usual, incapable of properly legislating the matter. Unbelievable. She's just out of her depth yet again. Lee Jordan on the mic fucking screaming bloody murder every two seconds. Even Megalian is, like, getting into it. And I would imagine she's like, Hooch, can you get these people under control? What are you doing? At one point, Madam Hooch, and it's described as screeched, I've never seen such tactics. Then do something about it. If only (laughs) some kind of official were here to, like, (laughs) do something. But when Malfoy stoops to the lowest low of actually reaching out and grabbing Harry's firebolt. Unbelievable. To try to stop him. Not that Harry needed any more motivation. He wants this win. All he cares about is Quidditch, right? right? It's like power rankings of things Harry cares about. Number one, Quidditch. Number two, that's a clear going pa- from a partial to a full. <laughs> Number three, you really got to concentrate. You got to concentrate so hard to get to the full. And the prospect, of- <laughs> the prospect of beating Malfoy, of shaming Malfoy head to head, it makes this even sweeter for Harry. And there's that great moment when Harry sees that the whole Slytherin squad is aligning yes. to impede Angelina and Harry zooms over to disperse them with the force of his broom and then he turns and sees Malfoy has spotted the snitch and Harry goes all out flat on the firebolt and he still beats him. He manages to knock Malfoy's arm away. What a beautiful moment. Wood is sobbing into Harry's shoulder. We get this amazing line about McGallion, quote, sobbing harder even than Wood, wiping her eyes with an enormous Gryffindor flag. (laughs) (laughs) Just so fabulous. And then the end of this chapter. This is not dignified. (laughs) This is not, this is beneath the dignity of a professor. Look, when Harry and Ron and other <laughs> Gryffindor students say that McGonagall is famously strict and never favors them, remember this moment when she is wiping her tears with a Gryffindor Listen, flag. She probably placed a bet, like in the offseason, Gryffindor to win the cup <laughs> oh, at yeah. whatever crazy, wild, long odds. And here she is. That flag a winner. is what she's going to wrap up her winnings in yes. when Ludo literal bagman bagman comes by to pay out later. It's unbelievable. And this chapter ends with a beautiful description. Quote, If only there had been a Dementor around. As a sobbing wood passed Harry the cup, as he lifted it into the air, Harry felt he could have produced the world's best Patronus. Jason? Yes? The podcast technique I'm going to try and teach you is highly advanced magic, well beyond ordinary podcasting level. It is called the download charm. After you've had some chocolate, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about one of the most important pieces of magic in the Harry Potter story, Patronuses. Expelliarmus might be Harry's one true love, but Expecto Patronum has its own special place in the Chosen One's bag of magic tricks and the wizarding world at large. For the skilled witch or wizard with a happy memory in mind, the two-word exclamation, which translates in Latin to, I await a protector, performs the Patronus spell, which, according to Pottermore, is the world's Quote, most famous and famously difficult defensive charm. A successful Patronus effort spurts out a silvery white guardian, which acts as a physical concentration of happiness and hope, inspired by the focused memory in the caster's spank bank. There are two versions of Patronuses. Incorporeal, which resembles clumpy wisps of silvery vapor or smoke and offers only limited protection. 
and corporeal, which takes the full form and substance of an animal. Some wizards intentionally produce, and don't they, incorporeal forms if they wish to mask their true Patronus's shape, like Remus Lupin, afraid of what his wolf form might reveal. He spurts out that cloud of silver. But generally speaking, the full-fledged corporeal form is the way for talented wizards to go when trying to fend off dark creatures like Dementors, against which there is no other defense. Protection is the main goal for this ancient char, but it isn't the only use. The Patronus can also carry messages, as we see from Arthur Weasley and Kingsley Shacklebolt and Deathly Hallows. But for the wizarding world at large, this is an unusual use of the charm, as Albus Dumbledore invented the method and taught it only to members of the Order of the Phoenix. As Rowling explained in a post on her old website, the Patronus is a brilliant messenger for various reasons. Quote, it is an anti-dark arts device which makes it highly resilient to interference from dark wizards. It is not hindered by physical barriers. Each Patronus is unique and distinctive so that there is never any doubt which order member sent it. Nobody else can conjure another person's Patronus, so there is no danger of false messages being passed between order members. Nothing conspicuous needs to be carried by the order member to create a Patronus. That's right. Of course, it also helps that most members of the Order are skilled enough to produce a Patronus. Sorry, Hagrid, who Rowling revealed on Twitter, was unable to master the spell. Not surprising. He's got that broken wand, after all. Sorry. They make pills for that now. <laughs> when he teaches Harry about the charm, Lupin says it's highly advanced magic and well beyond ordinary wizarding level, which will come in handy for Harry during his defense against the Dark Arts owl exam when he impresses his examiner for a bonus point. The majority of witches and wizards, though, cannot perform the spell successfully, and it has often been considered such a potent mark of wizarding ability and intelligence that the producer of a strong corporeal Patronus is selected to high office within the Ministry of Magic and Wizengamot. The relationship between the Patronus and dark magic is trickier, as it expressly is an anti-dark arts device and typically evades the mastery by the impure of heart. Most famously, the dark wizard, who I will call Residian, but I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, tried to perform the spell but was instead devoured by maggots that erupted from his wand. Jesus. <laughs> while, dark, <laughs> while dark wizards don't tend to require the services of Patronus anyway, as they consort with dark creatures rather than need defense from them, some less than noble figures can still successfully wield a Patronus, as Dolores Umbridge does with her cat in Hallows. On Pottermore, Rowling explains that, quote, a true and confident belief in the rightness of one's actions can supply the necessary happiness. Umbridge isn't a typical witch, but she does produce one of the more common Patronus forms, as cats, dogs, and horses are the three most frequently cited. However, while all Patronus forms are distinct, tied to the individual caster's identity, even identical twins can produce different ones. It's possible, but rare, to cast a Patronus that is an extinct animal or a magical creature, such as a phoenix, a dragon, or a thestral. Most famously, of course, Albus Dumbledore's Patronus was a phoenix, but don't let that connection mislead about the kind of wizard who can produce that kind of Patronus. According to Rowling, while a rare and magical Patronus undoubtedly reflects an unusual personality, it does not follow that it is more powerful or will enjoy greater success at defending a caster. It can be any type of animal. Beyond those general patterns, it's difficult to predict the form of any given person's Patronus. That's because it represents a hidden part of the personality, and it can even change through a person's life due to sadness or love, as we see with Tonks and Half-Blood Prince. Within the wizarding world, 18th century charms professor Catalyst Spangle has done the most research on the charm and its manifestations. Per Pottermore, he wrote in his masterwork, Charms of Defense and Deterrence, quote, it is evident 
that a human confronted with inhuman evil, such as the Dementor, must draw upon resources he or she may never have needed, and the Patronus is the awakened secret self that lies dormant until needed, but which must now be brought to light. The secret self is the most important part here, as Spangle has found it unusual for witchers and wizards to match their favorite animal with their Patronus forms. He writes, It is my firm belief that such a Patronus is an indicator of obsession or eccentricity, and you would be well advised to show respect and occasionally caution towards a witch or wizard who produces the Patronus of their choice. But don't despair, listeners, who proudly proclaim their pet would be their Patronus. Being obsessive or eccentric is no reason to feel shame. If you're a binge head, it's probably true anyway. So let that Patronus spurt out of you. <laughs> Take the form of your choice. <laughs> Halo is definitely my Patronus. Oh, that's beautiful. Is Milton yours? Yes. Yes! Still ask us that question when we do a mailbag. We'll talk about it at length. Jason? Yeah! Are you being paid to advertise Firebolts? Yeah, actually. If only. Get on with the seven! Because it's time to split our nuggets if not our souls by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Azkaban chapters 11 through 15. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. Let's talk about Harry's first dream in this span of chapters. Quote, he had a very strange dream. He was walking through a forest, his firebolt over his shoulder, following something silvery white. It was winding its way through the trees ahead, and he could only catch glimpses of it between the leaves. Anxious to catch up with it, he sped up, but as he moved faster, so did his quarry. Harry broke into a run, and ahead he heard hooves gathering speed. Now he was running flat out, and ahead he could hear galloping. Then he turned a corner into a clearing, and that's the end of the dream. So there are two different ways that we can read and interpret that dream, both of which are delightful. One of which, obviously, is as foreshadowing for the stag Patronus that Harry will produce in the Prisoner of Azkaban climax. He thinks he's seeing his father. He realizes that ultimately he was watching himself across timelines produce this and that he thus has the strength within him to do it here. And then there's the really deep Deadly Hallows foreshadowing of Harry following Snape's doe Patronus, representing his love of Lily, yeah. through the forest toward the sword that would allow them to destroy a Horcrux. Number two, speaking of the Patronus, the silvery white incorporeal Patronus, or even the full, the partial of the full, as we say, it's worth asking after Lupin's lessons, how powerful is a boggart? You know, like Harry feels the effects of, a, of an actual Dementor when he sees it. Right. So it's reasonable to ask, how far could that go? Yeah. It can't suck out his soul. How much can a bogger do? Now, according to ace researcher Zach Cram, the general belief is that a bogger can mimic certain aspects of a thing into which it transforms, but not the full potency of it. So for some examples here... Other than Dementor, the scream of Seamus' Boggart Banshee doesn't kill everyone, even though a real Banshee's yell would have. The full moon Boggart doesn't transform Lupin, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Number three. Yeah. Another dream. Quote, Harry slept badly. First he dreamed that he had overslept and that Wood was yelling, where were you? We had to use Neville instead. Then he dreamed that Malfoy and the rest of the Slytherin team arrived wow. for the match riding dragons. He was flying at breakneck speed, trying to avoid a spurt of flames from Malfoy's steed's mouth. When he realized he had forgotten his firebolt, he fell through the air and woke with a start. So, again, two ways to perceive the foreshadowing here. The first one is another Harry-Neville tie. We've spoken already yes. in the Azkaban bundle here about how the Neville-Harry ties are really starting to pick up in frequency in this book. Here's another one. And then, of course, dragons and brooms. The idea of Harry having to evade a dragon 
uh-huh. with his broom we'll foreshadows the first task of the Triwizard Tournament. Yes. Number four. Some more foreshadowing. Ron says that Lupin wasn't in the hospital wing when he was supposed to be, quote, ill. Of course, werewolves can't be in school sick bays. When Ron and Harry wonder what's up with this, Hermione, whom they're feuding with, tuts and says, guys, it's obvious. Snape's lesson in the boggart helped her connect the dots. But of course, she doesn't say anything until the freaking end of the book. You could have mentioned this, by the way, a little earlier. When Ron kicks open Harry's trunk, the sneakoscope goes crazy because Scabbers, a.k.a. Peter Pettigrew, is there. By the way, like, that's another one. This thing is going off and nobody's like, oh, the sneakoscope that you bought me. Should we be concerned about this? Jesus. Trelawney says that she's foreseen that Lupin won't be with them for very long. And you know what? She is correct. Mm-hmm. When Harry and Lupin have their lesson and Lupin calls back the boggart, we again see the silver orb, a.k.a. the moon. There's some good Harry thinks Cho is hot foreshadowing here. Key for the Goblet of Fire and really key for the Order of the Phoenix storylines. Ron's a celeb after the series Black Break-In. Quote, for the first time in his life, people were paying more attention to him than Harry. And it was clear that Ron was rather enjoying the experience. Some foreshadowing here of his Goblet of Fire anger. But thinking Harry left him in the dark about putting his name in the Goblet of Fire. Did you? <laughs> Did you watch on it? <laughs> and then. Ron and Harry look at scoop owls in Hogsmeade, and when Ron and Hermione finally make up about scabbers, Ron says, Mom and Dad might get me in an owl now. Somebody will. Number five. As always, just some incredible Megalian action in, in this stretch, and we talked about some of it already. Here are a few more delightful moments of note. First, this is just an astonishing exchange to consider when they're examining the firebolt on Christmas. And Ron says that he bets Dumbledore gave Harry the broom because he also gave him the cloak. Harry first notes the cloak was his dad, so it's not the same thing. And he then adds, he wouldn't spend hundreds of galleons on me. He can't go giving students stuff like this. And Ron says, (laughs) that's why he wouldn't say it was from him, in case some git like Malfoy said it was favoritism. They're just describing what McGallion did. Spent literal literal hundreds of galleons (laughs) on a student. That happened. <laughs> what? They're like, this will never happen. That happened. I guess Harry thinks that Dumbledore has more moral fiber than Megalion. Then there's just everything in this span of chapters between Wood and Megalion. So delightful. When Harry and Ron first are telling Wood about the firebolt and how it's been confiscated, Wood's like, let me handle this. Quote, she wants Gryffindor to win as much as we do, you think? Then there's this elite Wood moment after he tries to convince McGonagall to give it back. He comes back and says, bad news, Harry. I've just been to see Professor McGonagall about the firebolt. She, er, got a bit shirty with me. (laughs) Told me I got my priorities wrong. Seemed to think I cared more about winning the cup than I do about you staying alive. Just because I told her I didn't care if it threw you off, as long as you got the snitch first. Now, again, Wood is McGonagall's protege. Yes. Like, he learned this shit from her. That's right. Then, when she finally gives Harry the broom back, McGallion says, seriously, and the description reads that she was actually smiling, I dare say you'll need to get the feel of it before Saturday's match, won't you? And Potter, do try and win, won't you? Or we'll be out of the running for the eighth year in a row, (laughs) as Professor Snape was kind enough to remind me only last night. Incredible. Do you think she sleeps wrapped in the Gryffindor flag? Yes, I do. I think she's like, you go into her room and it's Just like on a Gryffindor penance, Gryffindor throw pillows, Gryffindor lion this, lion that, everything Gryffindor colors. Yes. <laughs> Gryffindor pajamas. Anyway. Number six. Tartan dressing gown, though. Shall we take a moment, if we may, to admire the beauty and irony of this line? Ah, well, people can be a bit stupid about the pets, said Hagrid wisely. Behind him, Buckbeak spat a few ferret <laughs> bones onto Hagrid's pillow. Love that. That line coming from Hagrid of all people is just Hagrid, in the time that we have known him, has owned a dragon. Sweet Norbert. Sweet Sweet Norberta. 
Dear Sweet Fluffy. He also owned, we find out in chamber, a gigantic man-eating spider. Uh-huh. Yeah. And now he has Buckbeak that, uh, listen. Buckbeak is cute. Buckbeak is cute and almost killed Malfoy, but it's like, that was like, <laughs> but it's fine. Number seven. Finally, because we never tire of talking about Snape. Consider that the moment when Harry challenges Snape about James actually gives us some of our first information into the darker side, the less idealized side of who James Potter really was and how he acted. Now, no kid is perfect, and there was plenty of good to balance out the bad, but this is actually our first glimpse that there was some bad. Quote from Snape, Have you been imagining some act of glorious heroism? This is after Harry mentions that James saved Snape's life. Then let me correct you. Your saintly father and his friends played a highly amusing joke on me that would have resulted in my death if your father hadn't got cold feet at the last moment. There was nothing brave about what he did. He was saving his own skin as much as mine. Had their joke succeeded, he would have been expelled from Hogwarts. When Harry falls into Snape's worst memory, in Order of the Phoenix, he'll think back on that moment. Quote, What was making Harry feel so horrified and unhappy was not being shouted at or having jars thrown at him. It was that he knew how it felt to be humiliated in the middle of a circle of onlookers, knew exactly how Snape had felt as his father had taunted him, and that judging from what he had just seen, his father had been every bit as arrogant as Snape had always told him. Mal, turn out your pockets or we go straight to Isaac. Pull them out, Mal! Cram gave them to me. He brought them back from Hogsmeade last time. Indeed. And you've been carrying them around ever since. How very touching. And what is this? Today's winner! Ah! Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compels us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to Harry Potter. He produced a full, or what we believe is a full, and... Perhaps dozens of semis. (laughs) Look, admittedly not great that in these chapters, Harry doesn't follow through initially on helping Hagrid with Buckbeak's case like he promises he would, repeatedly feuds with Hermione or takes Ron's side in Ron's feuds with Hermione, keeps breaking the rules and kind of is, sort of-ish, gets caught, again has to leave the invisibility cloak behind, and disappoints Lupin, also losing to Lupin, the Marauder's Map. But it is great. That he got a fireball, the best yes. racing broom in the world. That's an incredible, incredible, incredible thing. Faced his fears, but the Dementors worked diligently to learn the Patronus charm. I mean, like once you start learning the Patronus charm, very difficult to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Blasts Malfoy with the Patronus. <laughs> with the Patronus, and then of course with some stanky mud, manages to avoid getting into Huge trouble, minor trouble with only with Snape regarding sneaking into Hogsmeade. And even more importantly, manages to avoid Snape figuring out that he has a map. Gets his first blush-inducing words from Cho. Mm. Produces a, patro- a full in front of her. <laughs> and he wins the Quidditch Cup. Woody and McGallion are absolutely sobbing because of what Harry has accomplished. And the bonus of beating Malfoy head-to-head makes the whole thing even sweeter. What a time for Harry. Truly. Well... The fates have informed us that your examination at the conclusion of binge mode will concern the orb. And we are anxious to give you sufficient practice. Yes. We did indeed know that Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, would be leaving us. One hopes, however, that one might have mistaken the signs. The inner eye can be a burden, you know. That's right. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey. And that you'll join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing chapters 16 through 22, the conclusion of Prisoner of Azkaban. 
Until then, remember, podcasting is a particularly refined art. We do not expect any of you to see when you first peer into Binge Mode's infinite depths. The incantation is expecto patronum, and you must grab your wand exceedingly tight. Focus all your happiness, all your memories, everything on one very intense memory. Put all the strength of your body into that and say expecto patronum and the stuff should come out. You're 13, right? How old are you? Yeah, you should. the stuff should come out at this point. 